What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The Mojo Radio Show. Welcome to 2015 and a new year for the Mojo Radio Show. Today, we take a moment to look back and revisit some of the highlights of the past three months. Welcome to episode 13, the Mojo Show's Golden Year. Hey everybody and welcome to the 2015 Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have you with us. If you've been with us for the journey thus far, welcome back. We appreciate you being with us. And uh, if you're new to the Mojo Radio Show, what do we do here? Well, Robbo and I try to find people that we think have got tips, tools, opinions, just thought-provoking stuff that can help you get your mojo working in and out of work. All sorts of topics, all sorts of people. If we think somebody can help as a guest, we get them on the show. And uh, the man who holds the whole show together, in fact, let's face it, folks, he's the gaffer tape of the recording studio of the Mojo Radio Show. Robbo, um, happy new year, mate. Thanks, mate. To you too. Always nice to be back in the chair with you. Back in the chair. And speaking of chairs, there is a spare chair here. I was going to say I should really get two chairs in here, shouldn't I? <laughs> well, apart from that, we're in the standing studio piece. That's right. <laughs> That'll come in an episode down the track. But um, the other chair that's missing here is AP. Mm. Um, I haven't seen AP since last year no. when he did that rather intoxicated <laughs> final episode with us in 2000. Has anybody seen No, him? I think he's still loitering over the bowl. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think today our, uh, our voiceover talent for this show was... Uh, I got to say, was probably an improvement. <laughs> 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 oh, that's on tape. Oh, don't well, let him hear you 70s. say that. Jeez, you'll break his heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> break his heart. And he's so fragile. Yes, I know. Especially when he's had a few. <laughs> Especially when he's had a few. Well, this is a special episode. We um, we thought that rather than just rush into 2015, because we have got some cracking interviews lined up for you with some wonderful guests, but one thing we quite often don't do, Robbo, is we, uh, we don't take time to take stock and reflect mm. on what has been. Mm. And we generally rub out the last number, 2014, quickly becomes 2015. We're into it. All guns are blazing again, and we don't take time to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly of the year that's been, don't yeah, you reckon? Absolutely. If you're going to make change, this is the time of year to do it, isn't it, when you've actually got the time on your hands to um, to affect it and start it off? So um, for those people who have been with us on the journey, we thought we'd um, just take some time to go back through the files of the Mojo radio show and just pull out the bits that we thought had the biggest impact on us in terms of content and tips and thought-provoking pieces and Mm. put together the golden year. And if you are new to the show, this will give you a very quick snapshot as to what our show, albeit very loose and tardy, is all about, Robbo. Absolutely. We should um, hop into it. Mm, Let's get into it. Looking back at the best of the best, the Mojo Show's golden year. To kick us off, um, Robbo, can Mm. you bring up um, that Bart Paulak? Mm-hmm. 
uh, piece. Now, Bart is the executive creative director of George Patterson Y&R. And um, the reason we kick off with this is because we spoke about brand and brand managers and business. And it certainly was an episode that got a lot of feedback, wasn't mm-hmm. it? It was amazing, wasn't it? It was one of our stronger ones. So Bart Paulak was episode 10. Mm. And I asked Bart about some of the common mistakes people make in their businesses with regards to brand. What, what would you say are the common mistakes that you are seeing with businesses, either leaders, marketing guys, brand guys, but they're coming to talk to you to communicate. What are the one or two common mistakes you think people are making that need to be addressed in order to make their stuff better? Look, I think, um, you know, it, it all revolves around this theme of appreciating, you know, the story that you, you wrap your your marketing message up with. Um, you know, often... often um, I think a common mistake is is solely communicating to to your audience's rational mind, um, and then making you know a half-hearted attempt at times, um, or, or or wrapping wrapping it up in a cliche, or or a, or a very conservative, safe attempt uh, at storytelling, and then quickly you know returning um, all of your attention to you know the the rational aspects of of your message, and you know as attractive as as you know companies and clients and brands think those messages are the reality is they appear in a in a more often than not very cluttered category um where there's a lot of parity and consumers out there just simply don't find them um that interesting and i think it's our job to uncover what that story is that will engage them and move them um and make that make that rational message of the client's more palatable and more, uh, you know, more memorable, more engaging. So I think that's something. Getting that getting that balance right is really important. Can you does does a great story for a brand or product come to mind for you that was kind of a bit unexpected, where the story really grabbed you? Um, just to give people an idea of, you know, where where do you go and what what sorts of things make up a great story for a brand? Well, I mean, there's there's uh, many many contenders for you know, for that, that space, to be honest. And, you know, as ad guys, you know, we're, we're very preoccupied with, um, you know, which brands are, are doing it right out there or have done it right. And, mm. and specifically the way they've done it. Um, you know, we always hold, you know, for example, a brand like Nike up who, um, you know, over the, over the years, over the decades, um, have so passionately and so um, compellingly told the story of determination mm. and made all of their products down to, you know, their cheapest sneakers um, synonymous with gritting your teeth um, and belonging to a, a club of people that never say die. Mm. So then when their sneakers sitting on the shelf up against an Adidas sneaker or a Reebok sneaker, um, all with similar specifications and features, um, there's a chance that the the person uh, in the store will will reach for theirs um, over the other two Mm. because they want to belong to that group of people that associate with never giving up. Mm. 
and that was beautifully captured, you know, in their long-standing, uh, you know, campaign line of just do it. You know, it, it, it summed that that attitude uh, and that story up perfectly in a beautiful, succinct line that you know people uh, wanted to be a part of. Was that one of yours, Bart? I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that, guys. Um, I, I just I, mean, take take it, mate. Take, on this show, take it. I think if um, if if uh, if it were, I'd probably be uh, you know on a, on a Learjet somewhere uh, <laughs> instead of the boardroom I'm sitting in now. The Mojo Show's golden year. Bart was such a good interview, wasn't he? He was. I was really impressed with Bart. I um, I must say he just offered some gems of wisdom on marketing and brand and business. Mm. You know, the other one that um, sticks out in my memory was actually episode one, um, the CEO of the performance clinic, um, Andrew May. And in particular, the question you knew hit him with about leadership and what we could do to imp- improve our leadership in the next 30 days. Do you remember that one? I do. And it's probably a great segment to play given the fact it's the start of a new year because mm. the question was around what would you do immediately to inc- improve the productivity and performance so why don't you have you like to play that one now just happen to have it right here Ooh. if you were a leader in today's business world and you wanted to optimize the performance for your team what words of advice or what would you do if you were that leader to increase in in, in the next 30 days uh, lead leader and ASONs to get more productivity, more performance, and, and a more productive team. What would you do? It's hard for me to answer that without it sounding like cash for comments. You know, um, <laughs> to you in the old days, I had to ring the bell. <laughs> they're promoting a product they're aligned with. Um, but, but for my, I had a meeting um, this morning uh, with Claude Ferry, and they were saying that one of the biggest things that they're finding with executives is, again, this whole personal performance area that how do people look after themselves? So my answer would be that, that it's, it's not just us, but we're finding a lot of the management companies a lot of the consulting companies are saying as well, how do you look after the whole person? So what I would be encouraging people to do is not to just look at the spreadsheet, but to look at the person that is driving the spreadsheet. And and, and one of the best ways to get engagement is to make people feel better about themselves. So if you are supporting Mm. employees to be healthier, if you're supporting them to be more energetic, if you're supporting them to flourish uh, psychologically, and if if you're supporting them to be effective, um, you're going to get a lot more return. Do you have an example of someone you've worked with who would be able to give us some tangible things, not not names, but tangible things that someone has done? It's a couple of things to give people an idea of what you mean um, to do that, Maisie? Yeah, well, I'll, look, I'll give you an example. Now we're doing a lot of work with um, IAG um, and just some, some simple things that they've done is to allow people to exercise during the working hours mm. and not feel pressured by that. Um, and and like, sort of research says this, but we know from doing this, because, you know, you can you can sometimes retrofit research to fit your story, but mm. when you see actually people who are given the opportunity to, opportunity to exercise at work, but then when they lose weight or they feel fitter or they feel more energetic, and then they go, like, this is like, exercise has been around for a while, right? It's not new. <laughs> but when you give people that permission, they work a lot harder. And they're a lot more effective. So it's 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 crazy, really, that I think that companies don't support their people to be healthier. And and, and we hear some people go, oh, you know, their their time, they've got to look after their own health and well-being. Well, the, the boundaries now between work 
and, and life had blurred more than ever before. So I think proactive employees, one, they get that, and two, they give their people skills, but also the space in the workforce to actually be supported around developing the whole person. Um, mm-hmm. Other things they've done at IAG... <clears throat> Is, um, they've done mindfulness programs where they've taught people how to relax. So they've given people permission to work in forced isolation to say, look, part of BOU, part of business as usual here, is we need you to think, we need you to have time out. Um, they've, they've given people permission to get off email. They've given people permission to start and finish a meeting on time. And, and if the meeting gets to a time where it's meant to finish, you have permission without you know, fear of being jumped on to, to say, hey, we've got overtime. I've got to get to my next meeting. So they're, they're really simple things, Bertie. But when you empower people with those, mm. it makes a big shift in the organisation. I think the thing that I heard in there that's that's gold, Maisie, if you're a leader, is it's not just the allowing people to do it, but it's making sure they feel good doing it. You know, the exercise during the day, most people are leaving, leaving to go to a, their child's soccer game or to go into a, a PNC meeting, whatever it may be. The issue is the pressure people place on themselves because if they leave and everybody else is not leaving, they feel really bad about that. So most people just say, well, it's easier not to do it um, because of all the guilt that I feel, but if a if a leader and a business can truly be into this and make it part of the culture, recruit on it, reward it, speak highly of it, and also the leaders do it, that that surely must make a difference, doesn't it? Oh, it makes a huge difference in trust as well, because trust uh, starts from what the leader does to mind that they walk into the office. Um, and and, and I, I see this, I'm sure you guys do as well, it's, it's sort of trendy now to say that we've got flexible workplace policies or we, we support work-life balance. Uh, I, I definitely won't mention the name, but a Japanese company that I'm doing a bit of work with at the moment um, has got us in to help them with work-life balance. And the only day that they would get permission to run our one-day personal best workshop is on a Saturday. That sort of sends a message to me that... Um, this company's sort of full of shit yeah, <laughs> while they're saying yeah. this. And then as we've started working with them, it's, it's, it's really interesting that there, there's no trust. There's this whole guard that people are worried about. Where is our results going? We've never had uh, as many people ask about the, the confidentiality clauses in the program as we had with this company because they did micromanage. Wow. That says, it says a lot, doesn't it? It sends it right, right down the pipe. So that piece was from episode number one, numero uno of the Mojo Radio Show. That was with Andrew May from the Performance um, Clinic. We were good back then. <laughs> How things have changed. <laughs> it, all went down, it all went downhill from there. But uh, speaking of which, um, whilst we're on this track of innovation and getting people to think differently, I must say one piece that I have personally used when I'm working with um, clients is something that Dan Gregory and Kieran Flanagan from the Impossible Institute talked about in episode five. Do you remember that when they talked about innovating the boring? Uh, yeah, I, I, that's one I think about a lot, actually. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. Whenever I talk to corporates, particularly senior levels like CEOs or senior management teams or boards, and you talk about that, it really takes the oxygen out of the room and they go, yeah, I wonder, that's, uh, that's a really interesting point. Nobody does, everyone goes for the sexy. But um, mm. can you roll that piece now of uh, Dan and Kieran from yep. the Impossible Institute? Right here. 
it's funny. One of the one of the greatest opportunities for innovation, or one of the greatest places to look for innovation, and I think this is relevant to anyone, regardless of the size of business that they're in, is is to innovate in the boring bits. You know, to look for the parts of the the business that are breakage points. You know, those little things that you don't pay attention to. I think a you know great example of that is, for instance, you know, Air New Zealand's warning videos. Mm. Which I mean, the warning video is the most boring part of the flight. It's the part of the flight no one pays attention to. But Air New Zealand has actually turned it into their greatest asset. Yep. You know, they don't invest as much in TV advertising anymore because people are so busy sharing their warning videos on YouTube. I mean, and I think if, if you start with this concept of where are the boring parts in your business? How do you, you know, it might be your on-hold music. It might be how people do an online sign-up to, to your business. You know, by focusing on those boring things that people typically don't spend a lot of time thinking about, we actually get to be really distinctive in the way our offering comes to the marketplace. We're on a mission to change hold music. <laughs> you know, when you're sitting on hold on a phone, that disingenuous voice that says, your call is important to us, please hold. I just think, no, it's not you would hire more staff if it was is it just me why don't we put if you want to listen to a TED talk press one if you want to hear U2's new album because I need to sell that <laughs> press two yeah, why don't we have better options on hold if we really want to change our business that's a boring bit looking back at the best of the best the Mojo Show's golden year they're, they're very good aren't they they're clever I enjoyed that episode so based on that Robbo um, the other thing that has changed is basically people mm. and how people interact with teams or with each other or culture or social. This has all changed. And maybe it's worthwhile pulling up that piece from Guillaume Pereira who talked about the web and thought leadership to do with um, the internet world. That that was pretty good because he talked about how teams have changed, didn't he? Mm. Yeah, he did. If we've got someone listening who is in control of a team or, in fact, overseeing a company with lots of teams, um, how has it changed it? And what's something that the team leaders could do immediately to capitalise on this um, this world we have right now on the internet? Yeah, okay. And I, I tell people, Gary, that there's an I in team. You know, we used to say there's no I in team and your team's all about working together as a group. But I reckon yeah. it's the exact opposite now. There's an I in team and you've got to find the I in your team. So in practical terms, I think that, that means two things. So as a leader, as a team leader, I reckon there are two things you should look at. So the first is look at your teams and look at the people in your team as individuals rather than look at the team. So think about it this way. So instead of going um, we, it's not we anymore, it's you and me. So it's, um, if I'm the leader, it's how I work with Gary, how I work with Rob Bo, how I work with Matt Church, how I work with Jane. So it's those individual relationships are just as important as working together as a team because there are mm. the smart, talented, innovative, um, incredible people in your team and they'd love to engage with you uh, and they'd love to engage with the organization if you just give them a chance to do that. Uh, and you can't do that by saying, okay, you're just a member of a team and you're just like everybody else. Um, yeah. Even if it's a high-performing team and a really great team doing great things, people want to be recognized for their individuality and what they bring to the table and what they bring to the team. And again, it's something that um, in the past, that wasn't so important. You, you hear about that lone innovator who creates something magic. But now we're all 
magical, innovative, or what the potential to be. It's just a case of tapping into that. So I think that's the first thing you can do as a team leader. Look at the individuals who are in your team and look at them as individuals and figure out what skills and talents can they bring as individuals um, as well as what they can do as part of the team. And the second thing I reckon we can do is, and this comes back to your point about the world being flat, Gary, is the second thing that we can do is look beyond your team, your current team, to see who do we need, who we can who we can bring in to achieve our objectives. So teams aren't necessarily fixed anymore. They used to be, because it just used to be, the team used to be whoever you had in the office, because everything was in the office. Uh, you had the files there, you had the secretarial support there, you had uh, the team cohesion was built in the office. But now that you've got the chance to have distributed teams and fluid teams where you just bring people in from anywhere around the world, uh, you bring somebody in with the right skill set for a particular project and you bring this band of people together and then at the end of it, they disperse and go off and do their own thing. It doesn't mean they all do, so you might have a core group of people who are always working with you, but just don't feel that your team has to be only the people that you've got with you. You've got a whole world, literally, to tap into when you're putting a team together. Robbo, do you remember... Uh Matt Church in episode yep. three. Yep, I do indeed. It was a long while ago, but probably my second favourite interview that we did last year. Yeah, he was, um, I'm a big Matt Church fan, as anyone who's listened to the episode already uh, will glean. Mm. But um, something that I that he said, I think resonates really well for the Mojo radio show with how you and I like to do stuff is keeping it super simple. And if you can't scribble it on the back of a napkin, mm. then you've, overcomplicated it and it's something we talked to Dan Gregory and Kieran Flanagan from the Impossible Institute um, and they were on in episode five Mm. is in fact it's been a bit of a theme through the show and I think it's something you and I have adopted is keeping our strategy very simple and if you can't write it on the back of a napkin then you're overcomplicating things. Do you remember Matt talking about that? I do. Absolutely. And the other thing I remember is him talking about the um, being a ninja of productivity. Such a great saying, isn't mm, it? It's fantastic. Because everybody around us is one Google click away from information, we've actually gone from a world where power was around controlling and disseminating information to where it's actually about providing meaning. So death by PowerPoint doesn't provide meaning, but using storytelling does. Um, The reason why manager as coach and leader as coach is such a powerful concept in organizations right now is it's about providing meaning for people. So at a high level, stop giving people information and start creating meaning. At a technical level, storytelling will do that. Um, Contextual diagrams will do that. Um, Metaphor will do that. Um, You'll see Dan Rome, he's written a book called The Napkin Expert, and he's basically saying what John McFarlane, the ANZ turnaround CEO, you know, over a decade ago, do. He flew into Australia and he turned the business around on coasters. Any senior leadership team that were hanging around Jock knew that if they pulled a PowerPoint slide up in front of them, he'd give them a guys go handshake. He was um, annoyed at leaders' inability to be organic, raw, and authentic in their communication. So it's simply this. Draw, don't show. So figure out a way to draw the strategy on the back of a napkin, like Dan Rome's book can teach you, and as a leader, turn up and do that. So I reckon if you can draw diagrams, if you can tell stories, and you can ask questions to establish meaning, they're three you know, really old-school tools. They're really high-touch tools that will have a huge impact in this high-tech world. I should have listened yeah, more in art class. Di- 
I didn't hear you, Robbo. Were you talking about the back line? Oh, I said I should have listened more in art class. <laughs> Hey, um, Matt, you and I have done a few gigs together at conferences of all different sizes and shapes, which, and I always love it when you are in the room. Um, can you give me your top tips for making, apart from booking you, apart from, how, would you make a, how would you make a conference rock? Aren't you a beautiful man for even positioning that? Thank you, Gary. I love your work and right back at you. Now, um, look, well, I think, I think there's a whole bunch of things you need to do. No more boring meetings, hey. I reckon that's got to be our, our mantra. Um, we spend so much money bringing people together and we do it in such a mediocre way most of the time. Um, I think what you've got to do is respect the classic energy curve of the, you know, people crash after lunch. So just be really conscious of that and don't put the CFO mm. there. It disrespects the CFO. Um, people, <laughs> people need to... People need to not treat speaking at a conference as I'm just going to get out of this alive. Um, James Hume was the presidential speechwriter for Ronald Reagan. Now, we all know Ronald Reagan was a cowboy actor. So the speechwriter was, you know, this James Hume, he was the thought leader in the White House during the Reagan years. And he said that every time you speak in public, you're auditioning. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. For a position in leadership. And I love that phrase because I don't think... People who speak at conferences um, give it enough respect and they need to treat it as a watershed moment, as a cultural tipping point, as an opportunity that's theirs to lose and they need to stop walking fearfully into it. So organisations get internal speakers because they're trying to save budget. They need to spend as much on their internal speakers being good as they do on getting external speakers. I think you also want to mix up the way you do stuff. I, I think there are three ways to communicate, right? Tell, show, up. And you get someone up to, like you who delivers a rock and roll presentation. Um, it's, you know, it's got a lot of tell and storytelling in it. But I've seen you, Gary, where you won't ever speak without getting the audience involved, you know, where you're mm. going, sorry, you're a hollaback speaker, you know what I mean, like an evangelical preacher. Tell me, you know, you've got them thinking and you've got them contributing because I think if you can make your conferences a conversation and not just full of presentations, great things will happen. Have a look at Pedro Kucha, um, which is the five-minute, 20-slide format. Have a look at building TED-like talks. Make sure they're 20 minutes or less and profound. Um, run panels, but moderate them really well. Um, make sure there's someone in the room whose job it is to get the audience chatting so they don't turn up and just sit like they're watching TV at home. So, the, you know, just little ideas like that. Shorten the days. Shorten the days. Shorten the sessions. You know, um, FBT means that people run this nine-to-five strategy. But that's as ridiculous, that's as ridiculous as every meeting being an hour long. Um, we yeah. all know if we look at, say, the huddle formats or the agile formats that amazing things are happening with compression. So you go, you've got 11 minutes for this meeting, everybody's standing up. 
I was reading Al Patambi's book uh, before our next meeting, Read This, and uh, it's talking about, you know, in-house organisational meetings and why they're wrong and how to fix them. But it, it also gets you thinking about conferences as an extension of that. So whether it's the boardroom or the ballroom, what we've got to do on that full scale is I reckon we've got to get a lot more effective about how we're using our time. And no more boring meetings, no more boring events has to be our new mantra. Otherwise, why would we? Something that I I add to what you just said, which I find fascinating, is when people book you for a briefing or for a meeting and they put in their iCal a one-hour meeting, and you're finished in 27 minutes, and then they go, well, we've still got 33 minutes to go, Uh, so what else is happening? (laughs) And they just fill in with nonsense and then bitch and moan because they don't have time, can't do any reading, but no time to think, I'm really busy. And I was like, man, are you done with me? Because I get stuff I've got to do, isn't it? I think one of the things you'll notice, uh, and I have certainly noticed, I love hanging around successful people. And the more successful someone is, the better their relationship with time, how they respect other people's time and how they respect their own. And we've, we've really, you know, with Brazil, Russia, India, China and Africa coming down the line, the internet built on 2 billion users and another 5 billion likely to come online mm. over the next three years. You know, you just go, wow, okay. Our competitive advantage, if you're going to live in the developed world, you know, if you're going to be, you know, that whole rise of the creative class and Friedman's work on how the world is flat, I go, if you just follow that concept or that meme all the way through to today, we have to become ninjas of productivity and architects of creativity. And I think that if you're not pursuing those two things, productivity and creativity, you're probably, you're a dodo, man. And Mm. we could wrap it on, right? There are more accountants graduating um, in India each year who are across the Australian tax code than we have graduates, so Mm. total graduates. (laughs) And so you just go, your tax return is going to be done in India real soon by someone Mm. real real good. That's gold. This is the Mojo Show's golden year. So from the ninja of productivity, we, uh, we're going to roll into something a little bit rock and a little bit roll. Mm, a lot of rock. And <laughs> anybody who has been with us for the journey uh, will know that we like, Rob and I came out, of, our background was Triple M. So we came out of the great halcyon era of great rock and roll radio with some of the greats. And uh, we like the show to have a little bit of rock and roll, so we throw it in from time, in fact, a bit more than time to time. We like to throw a lot of rock in, don't we, buddy? That's right. That's right. Can't do the show without my ACDC T-shirt on. Well, that's exactly it. And early on in the show, we had the privilege of interviewing Dave Albert, who's the CEO of Albert Music. And I will never forget the lessons that he had learned from ACDC. And, in fact, it's interesting hearing all of our shows back most of our guests have taken great learnings from people they work with, haven't they? That's right. Absolutely. And the ACDC story, they've weathered storms even the last number of months. They've had longevity. They're still pumping out rock tracks. And what really I think is iconic about this band is how they keep producing epic songs that stand the test of time. And um, let's just have a quick listen to Dave Albert talking about some of the lessons he took out of working with ACDC. Regardless of what industry you're in, the leadership of the business has to have the same synergy and like-minded beliefs, although they can be different, but they have to have that and they have to 
really love what they do. That it, it, it's it'd be an interesting checklist for those involved in running, um, whether it be a charity or a you know a social profit or an entrepreneurial business or a large business, isn't it? Because that's the same principles apply. Oh, absolutely right. And one of the things which you know, using ACDC almost as a as a as a case study. Uh, you know, Angus and Malcolm from from a very early age, you know, were absolutely committed. You know, they had this vision to be, if not you know, the greatest, but a, a great rock band. They they were willing to you know stop at nothing to do that. Uh, the people they put around them, whether it was managers or other you know, other musicians, um, you know, they were continually looking to to get the best. They you know they set set out on this on this path. They worked their absolute backsides off. They were incredibly loyal to you know fans, and you know that's sort of I guess you could you could reflect on that you know from a client perspective. Um, they they looked at the market. They're they're incredibly smart businessmen in understanding um, you know sort of what's happening in the in the broader market. They you know, are continually looking at um, at trends and not necessarily following trends, but making decisions you know, about how they do. Do things in regard to those trends. So, you know, I think ACDC and, and, and Malcolm and Young, Malcolm and Angus Young, particularly, um, you know, you could you could use that as a real basis of any any business in the way that in the way they think. And you know, the stories of in the early days, they play two, three, four shows a day. Um, they'd be continually, you know, recording music, putting out you know, new albums, um, and you know, they would stop at nothing to uh, to achieve. Uh, a very clear goal in their minds, and you know, Angus. All Angus ever wanted to do really was to be a great guitarist. And you know, uh, you, you talk to anybody who was around, you know, him at the time, and he never, he never didn't have that guitar with him. So, uh, you know, I think that that to me is you could you could use that to sort of look at any sort of type of business. And and they, you know, they were they were, they were true leaders. Great story. Yeah, that's gold. This is the Mojo Show's golden year. Favorite interview. Of all time, hands down. <laughs> you were loving that, weren't you? It was awesome. That's what a job. I mean, I think I'm lucky. You were like a fat kid <laughs> at a Cadbury chocolate factory, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, I was. I was the fat kid in Charlie in the chocolate factory. <laughs> Satya was such a good. That was a good fun one. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a, a lot of good lessons in that. Was episode number two. Yeah, a lot of good lessons, but uh, a heck of a lot of fun. And as it's well. not all and, just um, about the music either. That was the good thing about the nice thing about that interview. There was plenty of learning to be taken from it as well. There were learnings about um, you know making your way, building a business, um, copywriting, mm. creativity. You're right, mate. It was a it was a very very good show, and um, it was also full of great Akadaka rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't miss that opportunity, can we? True, true. And there'll be more to come. That's but right. um, the other one that I thought was a really good show was um, Todd Coates. Yep. He's the CEO of Bridge Climb and arguably one of the world's great tourist attractions. Yeah. There's a long history in tourist attractions in all parts of Australia. And he talked about his great mentor, who was Paul Cave, who had the dream to build Bridge Climb in Sydney. What are some of the things you've taken out that you've applied to your own thinking or your own approach to business or your own personal life? Um, three that come to mind. I, I heard Paul. Paul's been a director of, of the Domino's um, public business for the last nine years as well. And I remember a story he related um, about meeting some of the executives from America, a separate company, of course, who came out and talked about, you know, this is what we do in America and this is what our penetration and so on and this is what we think you can achieve here. This is what we think you can achieve here. And, and Paul said, gee, I've always I've carried this around with me. Well, are you setting a 
a goal or a ceiling? And that really resonated with me and it has sense. Are you setting a ceiling for yourself or are you setting a goal? John mm-hmm. McGrath talks about it as, as, you know, what are your mooring lines? And the thing with Paul is mm-hmm. everything's always possible. Anything's possible. And just freeing, having, having tools to free your own thinking. Okay, am I setting a ceiling here or a goal? Is this a mooring line for me? Um, or asking myself, uh, what would have to be true for this to work, rather than saying, oh, it's not going to work. Well, what would have to be true for it to work? And then let's mm-hmm. examine that. Um, I think the other thing from Paul, too, is just the importance. Someone else said this, but this is what I get from Paul. If, if you're a half inch off at launch, you'll be 10,000 miles off when you hit the moon. Mm. And I think about all those businesses I was involved in that did it tough. You know, you can go back and you can look at them and you can go, geez, we, we made we made one or two killer assumptions at the start that killed the business. And in a couple of cases, the business was dead even when it opened the doors. It was like a zombie business because it had already Mm. made the, you know, it had already had a critical assumption and it wasn't prepared to attack itself. Um, So, you know, we probably invest more time and we're we're doing a couple of, we've always got little R&D things going on. We invest more time and energy in that first four weeks where you're trying to set those fundamentals than at any other time. Mm. Um, and arising from that, I guess the last thing I, I, I carry with me from Paul, and, and I apply these and apply these things with, at, at home, as you say, and with kids, is always be prepared to attack yourself, always be prepared to disrupt yourself. Um, Picasso, I think it's Picasso. I, it, 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 these are the things that's kind of described, Paul. Picasso said success is dangerous. To, to copy oneself is more dangerous than to copy others. It, it leads to sterility. And I'm, that's something Paul practices. Always be prepared to disrupt yourself, or challenge yourself. Um, never believe that what got you here from the past will get you there in future. So, Bertie, one that's shaken my tree, um, and I know another guy that you have a lot of respect for, Glenn Capelli, episode 12, I think he was. Yeah, Cap is, uh, he's a genius. He's an a genius, and, and it was a fantastic interview, and, and one that I've actually used already, even though it was only a recent interview, I used it with my son just recently with a school project before school mm. end. Um, the Russian Brothers, do you remember him talking about that? <laughs> I do remember the Russian brothers. Yeah. More of and less of and read of. Do you remember them? Read of. And their yeah, cousins. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's, yeah, yeah. And the mad cousin. Let's run that one. Yeah, yeah. Let's let him explain it because yeah, yeah. he does it better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's my way, I guess, in visual note taking, you try to convert one form of learning into another. So I was mucking around with this and um, uh, I was thinking that sometimes we get smarter by doing a bit more of. And Morov, to me, sounded like a Russian brother. So Morov, if you say it in a funny voice. So, well, you know, in your health program, what is it you could do a bit more of? If you're running around the block for 20 minutes, but you could do 25 and go uphill, then that's a Morov. You know, what has this essay got that's really good that we could do a bit more of? Um, me as a leader, what do I need to be doing more of, in your opinion? And then... But the trouble is that um, Banana Rama had a song years ago that only you know, people like you and I would be old enough to remember, Gary, with, you know, more, more, more. So we tend to be a society that's good at more of, but um, maybe the second Russian brother we need to get a bit more happening, which is less of. You know, how, 
can I be smarter by doing less of something? Can uh, this essay be better by doing less of something? Me as a leader, what do I need to be doing less of? And then the third Russian brother is Riddov. Um, David Perkins, when he saw this model at the World Thinking Conference in Kuala Lumpur, he said, he said, ah, you know, I think we're good at more of, but less of and rid of, we're not so good at. Mm. So how do we do rid of? What do we shed in our life? And, and when we have to shed something, um, how do we do it? Um, you know, mm. we've, we've been lousy at uh, how we get rid of footy coaches, um, how we get rid of our prime ministers we're not real good at. Um, so when you have to get rid of something, um, how you front up and do that. And also to know that, you know, there's a lot of superfluous stuff in our lives. Yeah. And then the, the mad cousin, his name is Tossin. So what new stuff do we need to toss into the brew? Um, what new element of thinking or action does this um, project require? You know, some organisations do their 360-degree feedback and, and it's, it's, it's anxiety-provoking in some ways. But if you do the Russians, you can get the same result and as long as you're using a funny voice. Um, there's no threat to it. And, and indeed, Gary, you know, every presentation we do, we should look at it and go, okay, that was pretty good, but what, how, if it, what did I need to do a bit more of? What did I need to do a bit less of? What do I need to get rid of? Uh, what do I need to toss into the bro? Looking back at the best of the best, the Mojo Show's golden year. I think our first official person on the show was Dr. Adam Fraser in episode eight, wasn't it? Yeah, it took us a while to get some credibility, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> some would say we're still striving for that, Robbo. But anyway, let's, let's not dwell on that point. But... Um, I, I thought one piece we got a lot of good feedback on, and I know he's a very popular speaker on the keynote speaking circuit. Um, Adam Fraser talked about how you show up, and it was a great segment when he talked about the premise behind his book, The Third Space. And I think this piece is very valuable, whether you are a father, a mother, a brother, a footy coach, leader of an organisation or you're working in a social club, how you turn up is everything, isn't it? Absolutely. Can you just give everybody uh, up the premise behind the third space? Yeah, well, it's really a culmination of a various different things. So it wasn't, you know, when you, you, you sort of see a pattern or you stumble across something, that's what we did with the third space. So where it started is I was working with a couple of soldiers who were coming home from Afghanistan well, actually, I was working with a couple of soldiers in general, but we were having conversations and, and I was saying, what's the hardest part about being a soldier? And they said, well, coming home by far. I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, we've been away for six months, you know, in this weird environment in terms of if you compare it to society, it's weird. Um, and, and they said, we do stuff you can't even comprehend. And then they drop us home and we're supposed to sit back in and everything be fine. And what they talk about is that I've lived a certain way. I come home, my family is completely different. You know, the dynamics have changed. And too often, you know, this is kind of a sexist view, but the, the ones I worked with were males, but they came in and went, right, dad's home, I'm running the show. And their, their partner, wife or kids are like, sorry, we've been doing fine without you. Um, you can fit into us. So what we found was a lot of... With that transition home, a lot of conflict. And what I talked to them about was using that transition home to start to change their mindset to fit into the family better. So that was one. And then, you know, some of my work with athletes, uh, what they often talked about is the most important part of 
their sport was what happened in between the points. So whether it was volleyball players, tennis players, what they talked about is that gap between points was so critical because that's where you start to second guess, choke, worry, uh, overthink things. And they talked about managing this gap, you know, when they played tennis. And then the last one was a, like a very, very personal story where I was going to pre- present at the entertainment center in Sydney. Uh, to, it was a big group, 5,000 people, and, and uh, like about 20 minutes before I went on stage, which is unusual because I normally turn my phone off, one of my mates called me and, to tell me that one of my best friends had, had died unexpectedly. And I was just like, shit, you know, I kind of, you know what it's like before you go on stage. And I'm walking around the convention center in this days going, what just happened? And then the AV guy grabs me and goes, where have you been? You're like, you're going on stage. And I stood there and went, do I leave or do I stay? And and I thought, I've got 5,000 people who have paid money to come and see me present. I got this situation going on at home, but what can I do? I, I, you know, the last thing the family needs right now is for me to call them because they'll end up counselling me rather than me looking after them. And I just went, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go out on stage. I'm going to present, and then I'll take care of this situation. And I went out there and actually, you know, nailed the presentation. And afterwards, I was a complete mess. But you know, I just after, weeks later, I went, how the hell did I do that? How did I compartmentalise that and go? I'm taking care of this and then I'll deal with that. So these things started to get me thinking about, well, how do we transition from one thing to another? Like how does a soldier go from Afghanistan to home? How does a tennis player go from one point to another? And how does a speaker walk on stage when they've had something like that happen to them? So we just did all this research and we interviewed palliative care nurses and surgeons and comedians. And and what we found is there was this common theme through high performance of, their ability to manage transitions. So whether it's I'm going in to operate on someone and if I make a mistake, it's life-threatening. Um, how do I go from a bad day at work and not take that home? And we and we call this gap the third space. But what we found is that it's kind of what we do in between what we do that really matters. So that's what the book's about. So you've, we've got a listener who say, we've got a, I hope we've got more than one, but we say we've got a listener who's... Um the CEO of an organisation, she is coming home to her family. You've got a school teacher who finishes teaching in the afternoon, comes home to a family. You've got a guy who's leaving one meeting, which didn't go so well, walking into another meeting with people having an expectation. Um, Can you give me some tips and tools or examples of, of how people use that third space in different scenarios to their advantage? Like, Creating creating that space, where's the real gold in that to make sure that third space is utilised to the best of its advantages? Yeah, well, what we did with our research, and it took us four years, but we got there, was to nail all these case studies down and all the different psychological research to go, well, what has to happen in that gap? So if I've just had a meeting where I've had to performance manage someone or even move them out of the business and then I have to go to a strategy meeting, how do I do that? And what we found is there's three key mm. things. The first phase is called reflect and this is where we reflect on what's just happened. So how do we make sense of what's gone on? How do we shut that down so it doesn't bleed into the next thing? Because what we found is most people carry the mood and emotion of that first space into the second thing they're about to go into. Yeah. 
So they had the ability to reflect on what's just happened and move on from it. Then the next phase was called rest. And this was the ability to just be present and, and relaxed. And this might be two seconds. This might be, you know, a minute. And it's just where you come back to the present moment, calm your mind and focus on where you are currently. Because too often we, we go into the next thing with this scattered mind that's bouncing all over the place. And what we found is that just enabled people to think clearer, make better decisions, be more considered. And then the third phase was called reflect. Uh, sorry, it's called reset. So reset, it's reflect, right. rest, reset. And reset is yeah. where you start to think about what you're about to go into. Okay, I'm going into this meeting. This meeting's about strategy. We've got this political thing going on in this team right now. How could I navigate that? I'm about to go home. Well, I've had a crap day, but also my partner might have had a really hard day. You know, if I look at my situation, as I transition home, I think my wife's been looking after two kids all day. She's exhausted. Yeah, and it's thinking about what's about to greet me and what mindset and behavior is going to get the most out of that. So if I'm going in to meet with a team, with my team and we're reviewing a project that hasn't gone very well, right, okay, how should I show up for that? Well, I should be empathetic, I should listen rather than be in command and control, get their insight. So just using that gap to visualize and prepare yourself for what's coming next. Now, we, we researched this in various areas and we've got a group of small business owners to practice these three steps between work and home. And we measured their mood in home at the start and at the end of the study. And, and after practicing these three steps on the way home, we saw a 41% improvement in behavior in the home. You know, dramatically wow. changed the, yeah, it was huge. We were stunned at what an impact it had. And then our latest research shows that it changes the family dynamic too. The family's looking forward to them coming home. They greet them better. They, the, the dynamic of the family behaves better as well. The other piece for us to think about, Robbo, in fact, it came up over Christmas. I was talking to a mum leading into New Year's. She said, you know what I want to see next year? I want to see more scabs. Hmm. I hope you're talking about the ones on the knee. Yeah, exactly. And what this lady talked about as a mum, she said, I want my kids to go out there and get into it more. I want them to fall over and take off some skin and... Hmm and fall off the monkey bars and get gravel rashes and, and get out there and run around the grass and just get more scabs. You know, when, when I was a kid, I always had bark off playing footy or yeah. coming off my bike and stuff. Don't you reckon? Absolutely. Yep. My kids come home most days in a pristine condition and I look at them and I think, what have you been doing all day? <laughs> yeah. And I think we'd agree, mate, that there's been a theme through almost every guest we've had on the show about how we're creating this nanny state for our kids and probably for ourselves. And I thought Dr. Adam Fraser continued on this theme beautifully when he talked about how things are changed and how he went looking for a splinter and couldn't find one. Yes. Yeah, coming back to my previous point about what, what, what's that... What's the individual of the future look like? What's human 2.0 look like? And what, what we're calling it, and I don't even know if it's the right word, is, is gritty, which is all about tenacity. 
So if you look at the, our inability to implement strategy, one of it's because most of our days spent on emails and running from one meeting to another or interrupted and rarely do we actually get time to execute. So, you know, that's clearly a problem. But one of the other things is we just don't stick it out. You know, things start to get hard mm-hmm. and we we buckle, we fold. So what we're looking at this grit concept is how do we have tenacity? Now, one of the things that comes against that, sorry, this is a big answer to your question, is if you look at the way we raise kids today, you know, they give kids a ribbon for coming tense. Why the hell does that happen? You know, (laughs) like it should be first, second, third. That's my biggest bugbear. Yeah, everyone else is a loser. Like you're a loser, you lost, you did not win. First, second, third, done. Now today, everyone has to win, and, and yeah, uh, where this, I look at play, my, my, I was talking to my daughter about when I was a kid and what was it like, and I said, oh, the worst thing was when you got splinters, and she's like, what, what's a splinter, daddy? And I said, well, you know, where a bit of wood comes off and, and goes in your skin, and we went for a walk around all the parks, and I said, I'll show you, like, what a splinter. We couldn't find anywhere she could get a splinter. The grounds padded, <laughs> all the equipment has, you know, like our playgrounds weren't padded, they were made of bitumen, <laughs> you know, which rips your skin off. And so, the, the, and this is a lot of research by a woman called Carol Dweck, is that these last couple of generations, we wanted to make it easy for them. We don't want them to go through hardship. We want them to win all the time. We don't want them to experience setback. Mm. And even and when they do stuff, we tell them they're the best at it, even when they suck. Mm. And, and and what what her research has shown is it's killing their resilience. And, and the problem now is when they come up against struggle, they go oh, that's a bad thing. Who's coming to rescue me on that? Mm-hmm. And and what they have formed is this mentality of, if I'm struggling, that's bad, I should quit. Whereas, you know, the right mentality is, I'm struggling, that means I'm developing. So struggle equals development. If I'm, I'm finding this really hard, clearly I'm developing some skills here. But mm-hmm. this mentality is filtered into our organizations where we come up against hard stuff and we go, ooh, change strategy, let's try something different rather than, well, let's just knuckle down and persevere through this. So what we're finding is the one tip for strategy is to, I would show, I, I, I would keep a, a, a log, oh, God, how do I phrase this? If, if your team's trying to execute on strategy, rather than just reward them at the end if they hit it, it's showing them, the tiny little steps along the way about how they're getting closer and how they're progressing and how they're, they're improving. You know, some people call this mastery, whatever you want to call it. But in terms of strategy, I'd map out the plan, but don't just go, well, we'll celebrate that when we hit that end target. It's, it's showing them all the steps along the way to get to that end target, but celebrating each of those milestones as you go. The Mojo Show's golden year. I think that piece is so valuable for all of us to hear, don't you reckon? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I think any parent out there should um, have a good long listen to that one. And it's been very appropriate too for the show because we are uh, looking to do what we can to support the Cherry Brook Under 11 rugby team at Pennant Hills Oval. Yeah, it's funny, you know, I mentioned it as part of that interview um, about parents who, um, you know, who believe that their their, their kids should, um, shouldn't be graded and shouldn't be judged and shouldn't be told that, you know, maybe they're not as good as the other kids. But, um, you know, you can't, not everyone can be good at everything, unfortunately, and that's that's a lesson that, 
everybody needs to learn, isn't it? It is. And there is a very good TED speech. Now, TED is a worldwide forum for keynote speakers who do short 18-minute speeches. And if you go on there and put in a lady called Carolyn Adams, who is fantastic. In fact, I want to get her on the show this year, Carolyn Adams, and uh, to talk about her TED speech. And she is an expert on grit. It's just, you know, getting backbone and some, what Mm. they call it, schutzbar and some resilience. Absolutely. And uh, I liked her TED speech. I'm going to chase her down. She's in America to get her on the program for uh, for this year. Nice. But it just dovetails into the stuff that Dr. Adam Fraser talked about. Bart Pollack had some beautiful, beautiful comments on kids of Mm. getting kids to look inside themselves for imagination rather than live their imagination through other people's. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was in episode 10. So I think um, we're going to continue on this grit line. Yeah. uh, And we'll get Carolyn on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the other one that... um Probably a nice way to finish this off. The other, the other person that we've spoken to in the last few months was um, Michael Smith, who's nutrition expert. Yeah, he was great. Yeah. In fact, the piece that I remember was um, him dispelling some of the myths. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's plenty of them, isn't there? Could you just maybe cover off one, two, or three of the myths that we've been led to believe over the years that are the right, the right. Um, directions for us with our health that are turning out to be incorrect and are leading to some of the issues we have in society? Like what are the what are the myths that you think need to be addressed and uh, the truth be spoken? Probably the biggest one is that we should be eating a low-fat diet. And I think that myth already being started to be exposed with a lot of the research now shows that's not that's not the case and that's actually one of the causes of all our chronic health problems that we're eating low-fat. Because if you're eating low-fat, you must be then eating high-carbohydrate from cereals and grains, and that's the mm. part that's leading to the obesity. It's, you know, the government slowly, you know, they take a long time to change. The Swedish government's actually changed their official guidelines to recommending a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. So that's, that's a good start. And the problem is, is a lot of the industries uh, focus on their foods are low-fat, low high-carbohydrate, Grain, you know, muesli bars and cereals. So the government has a lot of pressure from from outside influences on what we eat. Mm. And then after the high fat, low fat myth would be the that we need to eat seven or eight serves of grains a day. Mm. I still hear dietitians and people saying that you can't cut out grains; they're a food group. But it's only the last especially the last 50 years of all the processed foods that we've eaten grains in the quantities that we do eat them. And the other thing that, the, the other thing that resonated with me, um, because my, my, my wife's a celiac and I have Crohn's disease, is uh, what he had to say about um, the, the gluten-free diet and, um, and to put it in the nicest possible way, your poop. My poop? Everybody's poop. <laughs> <laughs> and as much as we laugh... It's so important to hear this piece because it has such an impact on people's lives. Yeah. In fact, I think a lot of people have the impact who don't know it. Mm. We need to bring it to their attention, so mm. to speak, of you can tell a lot by the way you poop yeah. and also the massive impact the gluten is having on our digestive tract and inflammation and everything else. So you should let's play that bit. Can you just give us a quick snapshot of what 
what gluten is and why gluten is creating issues for people? Well, gluten, it's a protein found in like the wheat mainly, but also rye and barley. And for everyone, it creates a release of a chemical called zonulin, which creates inflammation in the digestive tract. So sometimes people may not necessarily have digestion symptoms. They might have, like I've seen people cut out gluten and their arthritis goes away or their brain fog goes away. So I just say to people, just let's just cut it out for 30 days and see what difference it makes. But also I recommend they don't eat what I call the gluten-free crap as well, like gluten-free breads and gluten-free yeah. biscuits and and just eat a real food diet. Like I base it on like a paleo diet, but I don't necessarily recommend people stick to a paleo diet 100% all the time. Like if you cut out all the grains, all the processed foods and the dairies, and then in a month's time you can introduce one or two, one at a time and see how you feel. Some people might be fine with you know, a little bit of rice or quinoa. Uh, some people might be fine with dairy. What are some of the signs that you know that someone is not feeling as good as they should? So probably the number one one is what we're just talking about is your digestion. So if you're getting, you know, if you're not going to the toilet every day or, you know, loose or falling apart in the toilet bowl, there's something called the Bristol stool chart. So people can kind of check that out and, and see what their stool's like. It should be well-formed. Because if your digestion's not working right, you could have things like leaky gut. So let's talk about poop. I how, how regularly should one be going to uh, do number twos? And tell me utopia for when your system is working properly, uh, what should it look like? And what are the signs that things maybe aren't, aren't, aren't right? The ideal is probably once a day uh, in you know, traditional cultures where they're eating, you know, no processed foods, it's two or even three times a day. And you can test out, like sometimes people go every day, but they might be pooing two or three days, takes yeah. two or three days to go through them. So I'll often tell people to do the beetroot corn test where they eat some beetroot and corn and they should see it in the stool. It's quite noticeable the next day. And if it's coming out two, three, four, or even five days later, you know, you've got a slow transit problem. That is gold because that's something that people could immediately leave this program and test, isn't it? So, and if anyone out there is um, pooping gold, <laughs> give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are golden beetroots. <laughs> so it, it looks like you might have had blood. So it's you know, don't be alarmed <laughs> yeah. if, it, if it's red, but that's what it should look like. Bristol stool chart's a good one that people can just look up online easily, and it just shows all the different like types of stools you can get or poos and and what the ideal one should look like. Looking back at the best of the best, the Mojo Show's golden year. On a personal note, Gaz, and and and, and probably a little bit of a serious one, um, a close family member to my family passed away over the Christmas period of, of a cancer, um, which actually in its early stages could have been caught by inspection of the the, the, the poop. Um, really? Yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it? It's, um, it's, you know, it might just save your life even. Well, as, as much as we laugh about it, um, going back 20 odd years ago, before we even knew what celiacs was, mm. um, I had chronic fatigue syndrome mm. and it didn't have a name back then. And I remember meeting a modern medicine couldn't tell me what it was. Doctors, I'd been to everybody. And I met a Chinese naturopath who was practicing in Australia. Mm. And he spoke very little English, but he 
was able to help me through over six months of acupuncture and herbs, everything else. He helped me through the whole chronic fatigue thing and sort of started to educate me on how it all works and what I needed to do to, to heal myself. Mm. One of his very first questions was, what do your stools look like? You've got so, four legs in a seat. Yeah, I'd use that one, but he didn't laugh. <laughs> but it, uh, so there's a lot of power in it, but it's something yeah. we take for granted. It's, it's the most easy visual thing for us to do. And the Bristol stool chart is the go-to for people who want to Google that mm. and, uh, and check out their poop. Yep. And for, coming from me, from someone who works in the advertising industry, we could even give it a slogan, turn around and look down. Oh, that is gold. That's gold. <laughs> do you like that? Maybe you should give Bart a call, see if there's something we can do with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I reckon that just about wraps up our, uh, our look back at the golden year. I reckon it does. I reckon, though, no, that um, I've got one personal one that, um, that I really want to play. It's only a short one. But um, yep. just going back to episode three to Matt Church again, um, this is one that I adopted straight after the day after we did that interview and one that I've done pretty much every day since. Do you remember Matt Church talking about the three wins? Oh, that was good. Yeah. I, I just want to play this quickly because this has changed my life, honestly. First thing in the morning, what's your morning ritual? What's your morning routine? I make my wife a coffee. I, when it's not winter, do a 20-minute run. And I um, am looking for three quick wins before eight. So a quick win could be um, that I pump out a memo for a meeting and get it sent so that the meeting happens faster. It's all, I'm looking for three quick wins before eight so I get um, momentum. So what about you, Bertie? Is there one that sticks out for you, one that you've used every day? Um, I, I have got pages of notes, mm. but if the question is one that I apply every day that sticks out, I'd have to say it was Anna, the beautiful Anna Devena, oh. who talked about sleep. What a lady. And uh, it got so many downloads. I mean, that was really up there with our most popular shows mm. and incredible lady, just beautiful spirit. We'd, we did that one at nighttime. And mm. I have to say every night when I go to bed, um, and even in the morning if I wake up and, and go back to sleep, I, um, I still think of her piece where she talked about getting into bed, feeling the sheets, mm-hmm. snuggling in, mm-hmm. just relaxing. And I do that every single time um, I go to bed. So um, I think Anna, which was episode six from memory, yep. um, and I think also because sleep is such an, a, uh, an epidemic, a, a bad epidemic that we suffer from, mm. Um, and any biohacker or wellness person or people who are saying set resolutions for the new year, everybody will say that sleep has to be eight, seven to eight hours of sleep. So I think um, every, on a daily basis, Anna had a, a pretty big impact on me with her uh, her beautiful spirit and her tips. Right, I've got that bit here. Hang on. What would you say to Robbo that he could do tonight immediately to do that? Okay, so I'll give you a couple of things that you can do in bed because I've already said the things to do leading up to bed. So once you get into bed, snuggle in and notice that your mind wants to run off somewhere else. You know, your body's lying in the bed, but but your mind wants to run off into tomorrow or back into the day you just had. Just bring your mind into the present. And one of the easiest ways you can do that is by noticing how the bed feels how your sheets feel, how your pyjamas feel. How do your pyjamas feel right now? 
All soft and fluffy. Soft and fluffy. So notice how soft. Most pyjamas are soft, aren't they? So you notice how soft your pyjamas feel. And just keep your attention there and then notice the rhythm of your breathing and what happens as you breathe. And notice that the breath is coming and going without you doing anything. And you can just watch it. Just watch the breath. So just watch the breath. And then notice your heart. Notice that your heart's beating all by itself as well. And just bring all your attention into the physical sensations that you're experiencing in your bed. And if your mind wants to wander off, you say, no, 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 no. I'm just going to be here and now. And if you do want to distract your mind with a thought, say, what do I feel grateful for? And just think of something really simple. Mm. Maybe that it's the fact you have a really nice, soft pillow. You know, just something simple. And then keep your attention on that. And if you have to take it one step further, you can say, okay, what's the most beautiful, calm place I've ever been? And you can imagine that. Different things work for different people. And one tip that works for many people is to relax your jaw. You just let the jaw soften and then you'll notice that your whole face will relax and your eyes will soften and you'll just feel a lot calmer because the jaw holds a lot of tension and when that releases, it kind of sets off a domino effect and a lot of the body then relaxes and releases. So on that note... It's a very mellow way to finish, isn't it? Put everyone to sleep. I'm mellow. <laughs> I'm mellowing out, man. <laughs> but she was good. She was terrific. She's just calming in herself, isn't she? Mm. So that um, that was the golden year. Well, the golden three months, if you wanted to look at it chronologically. <laughs> Tell you what, we crammed a lot into that three months. We did. I mean, literally, I have got pages and pages of notes of stuff that we've talked about. Yep. And it was good. And I've got to say, I've got to compliment you, mate. Uh, the production values and how you've pieced things together. Some of the specials, some of the things we didn't cover off, the Stephen Seagull's uh, story we did mm. um, on episode four, the tribute to the Lit Cafe episode we did just very recently. Yep. Um, the and the support we put behind the real junk food project. Mm. I mean, your production, mate, has been first class, buddy. Oh, I enjoy it. It's That's the thing. It's not a chore. It's, um, it's, it's, it's mm. just good fun. So um, it's nice to have yeah. not to have a director or a producer looking over your shoulder, going, "Do this, put this here, do that, take that away." <laughs> I'm, 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 I promise, I'm going to start that for 2015. <laughs> sort of creative freedom's a nice thing. Uh, yes, sir. That's it. And, and, and I guess, it, I, I guess, the other thing, Bertie, is it's no secret that we pre-record some of these interviews, and you know, I'm excited about some of the ones we've got coming up too. There's some rippers, isn't there? I can honestly say to anybody who's been on our journey, the stuff we've got coming up. There are some absolute yeah. crackers. Yeah. If you're new to our journey, go back, check out the golden year, the last couple of months. We've tried to give you a flavour of what it's all about. Yeah. But um, we, we hold ourselves, I mean, although the show is pretty loose and we have a few laughs and stuff, we do hold ourselves to a pretty high standard of giving you usable, practical tools to get yeah. the mojo working, don't yeah. we? And that's, you know, if production's my bag, Gary, the guests that you've got coming through are... Um, well worth listening to and I don't, I, there's been not a slouch amongst them so far so um, no. that's a good thing there's some good ones coming up absolutely 
I better uh, go and uh, get ready for the next show then, I suppose. I'll be listening. I like to listen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Till next week. Out. Out. See ya. The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.